You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 132 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Um, let's see, on a scale of 1 to 10, I am approximately a 7.5. Only 7.5, why? I don't know, I think that's pretty good, don't you? Do you oh, like, okay. No one's 10 out of 10 every day, are they? No, but it's good to be like 8 or 9, I think. <sighs> Well, so seven and a half is good as well. Yeah, no, I'm all right with seven and a half. You know, it's just you know, it's that t- it's November and NaNoWriMo started, and I'm climbing the hill of words, and I'm okay with that, with without being you know beside myself with joy at this point. So I think seven point five is pretty good. What about you? Where are you at to? Where am I today? Well, my brain is probably an eight, but my body <laughs> is probably a four because a I'm four. still recovering from like a little bit of a lurgy. Oh, no. The codrel. You're the, still on the codrel. Yes, on the codrel. But, you know, codrel is amazing. This it's is amazing. not sponsored anyone. You can also buy the generic oh, yes, variety. Oh, yes. Sorry. <laughs> Shall I say you are on the cold and flu tablet? Yes. The generic right. pharmacy brand cold and flu tablet. Right. Yes. But anyway, uh, I'm on the, as they would say on Fox Sports, I'm on the improve. You're on the improve. <laughs> well, you're sporting. Have you played hard and is it a game of two halves? <laughs> have I had good form? Have you had good form? <laughs> you know, is, is the opposition playing well, but, you know, you're going to beat them? I mean, you tell me, Val. Oh, you, you watch tell me. No, I don't need to watch it. I've seen so many of those sporting, sporting, sporting interviews over the years that you can just about, you know, do them word for word, yeah, can't you? pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, um, this is actually so you want to be a writer, not so you want to be sick or so you want to <laughs> or a become a sports huh? journalist. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we have a good show lined up for you today and we first want to give a shout-out to Medway Kate. Now, I'm not sure whether that means Kate's last name is Medway or she lives in Medway or something. But hello, Medway Kate. Thank you so much for leaving us a review on iTunes. Uh, And Kate said, when I listen to Val and Al, I feel like we are sitting around the kitchen table having a cup of tea and talking about the wonderful world of writing, except they're doing all the talking (laughs) and I'm just listening. Oh, we're so rude, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So rude. Um, And I'm just listening, nodding and smiling and thinking, how soon can I get back to writing my book? I enjoy the author discussions and value the insightful, up-to-date information that this podcast provides. Thank you for providing an entertaining and informative podcast. Wow, thank you, Kate. 
Yes, thank Midway you, Kate. Kate. And Midway Kate, and you're welcome and very, very happy to be having a cup of tea with you. Yes, absolutely. Even if we are on generic pharmacy brand, yeah. cold employed. <laughs> yeah, so I might not make a lot of sense this episode, so bear with me, but I will try. <laughs> Alison can take over if I Oh, start no, rambling. let's not do that to them, Val. That would be a disaster. <laughs> so shall we move on to the world of writing and publishing this week? Let's. Come on. Well, all right, what have we got? Um, I believe you've got some links about leaving reviews for other authors' books. Is that right? Oh, yes, I do. Sorry, I totally failed to pick up my throw to owl moment there, didn't I? Alison's um, on Codrill too. Well, no. I'm also, I should be on Codrill, clearly. Um, oh, sorry, generic pharmacy yeah, brand. Generic now, pharmacy brand. Um, Last week, I don't know if you remember this, Valerie, but because of your haze, but last week we had a bit of a conversation about authors reviewing other authors' books and supporting each other and all of that sort of stuff. And there was, um, and we've received a, a, a question, and I'm so sorry, but I've totally lost track of who sent it to me. So if you sent me this question, thank you so much for a wonderful question. And the question is, should authors review other authors' books? So this is probably not just, you know, leaving a comment or retweeting something or supporting or, do, you know, or you know, read this, it's great, or just got my copy of such and such and here it is and that kind of stuff. But this is an actual, like, am I going to do critique someone else's book um, and, you know, either on my blog or anywhere else? And I guess I want to ask you that question because – how do you, is there sort of like, I mean, I ran the Pink Fibro Book Club for a long time and I went out of my way whilst I was actually running that club. I would have a book every single month. I went out of my way not to really do an in-depth review of it. It was more of a matter of here it is, this is what I liked about it, throw to the actual conversation that was going on in the Pink Fibro Facebook group. Yeah. because. As a writer, I, you know, I, particularly if it's a book I don't particularly like, there's no way that I'm going to review it. Do you yes. know what I mean? Like it's not going to happen because I just don't. I'm not in the in the business of of doing that to another writer because I feel like I'm on the same side of the fence. If you know what I'm saying. So I guess my question is like, what? How? Where do you think the line is for authors reviewing other authors' books? What do you think about that? Well, everyone's going to have a different response to that. So I can only talk about what I would do personally because mm. I do know that some other authors find it very useful to review other authors' books because it still gets them exposure. So mm. they still get a very big you know, uh, spread in the Sydney Morning Herald or the Age or whatever if they mm -hmm. review a particular author's book. So they like doing it for that purpose because sometimes their book may or may not, I don't know, have had uh, coverage. But at least if they've interviewed, uh, if they've reviewed an author's books, they do get a tagline at the end saying John Smith, the reviewer, mm -hmm. is um, also author of such and such. Mm. Now, it, uh, yeah, it, I, I, I'm in – two minds about whether this is a good idea or not, depending on the way in which you approach it. I think that it's – personally, I would not review another author's book if it was a terrible book. I would just mm. ignore it. I just wouldn't mm. – I mean, if it, I just read a horrendous book or I thought I just really didn't enjoy it. I don't feel I need to tell other people of a book that they potentially won't enjoy either. Mm. I only really want to spread the word of the books that I think that they will enjoy. Yes. So yes. it's a little – on one side of the fence there's, um, you know, if you don't have something good to say, don't say it at all. The mm. exception is I feel if is if you have a particular level of expertise in that area. So let's say um, 
you know, there has been a book that's come out and it's set in Egyptian times or, you know, in, in a particular it, – it, it goes in depth into a particular world or a particular part of history or, you know, something like that. And if you've got particular expertise in that area, I kind of – think that it's okay to write about something analytically to also talk about, you know, whether it was accurate or whether it um, it followed the, the, the right chronology of events or, or whatever. So, but if you don't have that level of expertise and you're just doing it from an enjoyment point of view, I'm not, yeah, you know, I'm not really sure about that. What mm. do you think? Well, I think as you say, I think the line is probably in a different place for, um, for every author, I think it's, it probably comes down to you to make a decision about where you want to to be on that on that particular um, to be on that particular line. But for example, like my twelve year old is a book reviewer, as as we may have mentioned, and he has a policy. Um, that he'll only review a book he likes. If he doesn't yes. like it, he won't review it at all. He'll because just leave it off point? entirely. Yeah, as he said, he said, Mum, I don't even want to finish it if I don't like it, let alone actually review it. And I'm like, oh, fair enough. So that's kind of like his his rule and that's what we, you know, if people do um, send us books for him to review, then that's what we say. If he doesn't like it, it's not going to appear on the blog. So just so that you, they know that that's what the rule is. But the other interesting link I read this week um, as a complete aside is um, on the fabulous Anne R. Allen's blog. And we've mentioned her blog before with Ruth Harris, dot, 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 um, where she writes mostly about writing. But she put a post together which kind of summed up Amazon's new review rules and you know, whether or not authors should be worried because apparently um, Amazon has tweaked its customer review rules and they do affect authors because there is a kind of, um, they put a ban up on incentivized reviews. They put bans up on, you know, trying of offering, um, you know, gift cards or whatever for reviews. Um, But also, if a reviewer has a, re- a social media relationship with the um, author, um, some of those have been problematic. People have actually re- – uh, Amazon has removed reviews because that person is thought to be too close to the author. Um, you know, if, if uh, the review is written by Amazon affiliates, it may be a problem, which is a big issue for book bloggers who, of course, um, many of them actually make their income through Amazon affiliate reviews. So um, it's actually an interesting post and worth having a look at because one of the things they talk about is this review written in exchange for another review. And I know that yeah. um, there are authors who work like this. If they're yeah. in a similar sort of area, they will, you know, exchange reviews. And um, in fact, uh, Anne even talks about the fact that she's heard of small presses who encourage their authors to review each other's books. Yes, um, and they don't even just review each other's books. Some of them have reviewers who work for them because I know somebody who is a reviewer who works for an author and they're they're in a Facebook group and they just approach each other's other reviewers and they say, Mm -hmm. hey, I'll review your boss's book if you review my boss's book. Right. Okay. And basically they're saying that it's a bad way to do it. It's mm. a bad idea mm. in the fact that you can actually, you know, lose the review, all the reviews off your book, off your book for this reason. Um, don't, she suggests never ever joining a review swapping group because yep. Amazon is sort of everywhere. So uh, you look, it's worth having a read of this. It's worth thinking very carefully. If you are an author, if you're going to review other people's books or ask for reviews or whatever, think about who you're asking and why. Um, and also like, it's that whole thing of like, um, 
even if an author asks you for a review, if you didn't like the book, you don't need to do it. It's as yeah. you know, simple as that. So, um, yeah, so that's – I just wanted to – I just thought it was worth, you know, on top of the conversation we had last week, you know, flagging this particular post for authors to have a read of. And we will, of course, put the link in the show notes um, uh, about Amazon's new review rules. And, of course, you can find those show notes at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. Uh, but I think that's interesting because sometimes I do read, like, you know, in my Saturday papers and I read a review, sometimes a scathing review or a generally negative review written by another author of another author. And I sit there and I go, oh, my goodness, do you, you know, that might happen to you one day. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose yeah. that's that's no reason why you shouldn't do it, but you just need to make sure you're doing it really objectively and from an informed place. And that's why I say that if you have an area of specialty, I can kind of get it. But then yeah. sometimes I don't get it when you don't actually have nothing to do with this topic or or, or genre or, or whatever, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, the other thing is too that other – like author reviews can be fantastic. Like Kate Forsyth, mm-hmm. our presenter, international best-selling author, she reviews regularly at Booktopia and she reviews within her genre. She reviews – and, you know, if she loves a book, um, then – her readers know that they are also going to love that book so it's a really interesting it's an interesting conundrum and I think everybody just needs to make a decision about how they're going to approach it and why yeah don't do it just for the sake of it no all right great well I have something quite different in my case it's actually from business insider but uh, (laughs) eight common grammar mistakes and how to avoid them and uh, it's actually been written by Rosalind Petalin, who has released a new book um, uh, about grammar. So she's a bit of a grammar nerd. But um, one of the things that she mentions is um, incorrect pronouns. This happens a lot these days. She says, the irritating genteelism of they asked Agatha and myself to dinner and the grammatically incorrect they asked Agatha and I to dinner uh, when in both instances it should be me because sometimes Uh we have been taught for so long to say no you have to say I you know like um, Tom and I are going to the the shop um and it, but that's, that's correct tom and i are going that's to the shop. right that's correct <laughs> that is correct and and we've that's been ingrained in us that we you that we say tom and i or agatha and i in every oh, instance right. even when yes. it shouldn't be that way right. yes so you know that is one mm-hmm. um but also yes the wrong preposition that is um that often happens. Uh, he, she, she says, the rich are very different to you and me. So you need to change to to from to make sense. So the rich are very different from you and me. Mm. Right? So just sometimes it's, it's such a simple thing, but it actually is wrong. And there's there's a bunch of other um, grammar issues here as well, um, but which we'll put in the show notes. But any jump out at you that you don't like, or do you have a grammar gripe of any sort? Well, you know, I have to say that often I'm I'm a lot less kind of uptight about grammar <laughs> than I used to be. 
Uh, I don't know. Like I, I look, I, I notice it. I see it everywhere. I get it. I understand it. Apostrophes drive me nuts. You yes. know, all of those things. But people who call people out constantly on social media and things like that over this sort of stuff also drive me nuts. People make mistakes. If you're writing an article or you're writing a business report, get it right. If you're writing a Facebook status update, I am not going to judge your apostrophe use. I will notice it. Do not be, you know, on in any way under any illusion that I won't. But I'm not necessarily going to, like, write in the comments that you need to move it because I think that that's just really irritating. Yes. So that might, that might actually be my most, you know, what, what was the word? What did you want me to point out? Your, gra- your grammar gripe. Yeah, okay, that's my grammar gripe. People who point them out constantly on social media drive me nuts. Yeah, right. right. There, okay. Well, <laughs> speaking of um- – but you know what? Yes. Dean Curry, <laughs> our AWC grammar man who writes those fabulous Q&As, I think everyone should be reading them because he explains them so well. Yeah, yeah, The definitely. whole to, from, different from, different to, change to, all that stuff. Have a look for those on the AWC website because they're fantastic. Yes. and But you brought up apostrophes earlier. Oh, sorry. So- Let's go back. <laughs> no, I should never have brought up apostrophes. No, yes. but you'd like this. Like people often say, oh, you know, freaking apostrophes, but they don't say freaking. Right? No, they don't say freaking. They say something no. else. They do. So there's this new book out. Oh. <laughs> it's cool. It's, it's just beautiful. It's like um, it's got uh, fabric, you know, covering on it and like an embossed cover, like an old-fashioned book. Yeah. And with sort of like some a really beautiful pattern on, um, on the top and bottom of the um, – title of the book which is smack bang in the middle and it's in beautiful sort of um, classic font and the book is called except it's not called this but it's called freaking apostrophes oh but it's actually the other word right that would get us an r rating yes it is a classic like it's written by a guy called simon griffin and it it may seem like it's a joke, but it's actually useful. It's a useful pocket bar, pocket guide, except it um, it sort of says things like um, singular possessives are shown by adding a freaking apostrophe and then an S. <laughs> <laughs> Examples, Lance Armstrong's test results, John Travolta's toothbrush. <laughs> and then it'll say... And again, it uses a different word. It'll say, don't get a mission. Ooh, ooh. <gasps> Valerie Coo. What did you just one. say? I won't say that one. Oops. Possessive pronouns and adjectives never use freaking apostrophes. Mm. And it'll give an example. But this is such like, this came into our office. And it had us in stitches, actually right. in stitches, because it okay. is somewhat hilarious. And we have three copies of this book to give away. Oh, okay. Yes. So you know, uh, you can. You can this is this is just a, such a classic that we had to ask the publisher for a giveaway because the whole office was in peals of laughter for hours reading mm. this book. So you can have a look at um, writerscentercomau slash win mm-hmm. and um, uh, in order to enter and see if you can win a copy of this hilarious book. 
So there you Fantastic. go. Fantastic. All right. There you that's, go. That's, not actual, that's actually not our official giveaway this week, but since you oh, brought up apostrophes. Oh, okay. It's all I my had, fault. I had to mention it. Let's okay. move on then to a link that you have. Yes, um, I thought this was a terrific link for us to have a look at this week, given that NaNoWriMo is underway and that I'm sure lots of people are, um, you know, diligently out there beavering away with their words. Um, Pip Lincoln, who I do love and is a lovely creative you know, artistic, crafty, bloggery type who writes beautiful books. And we've actually done a terrific interview with uh, Pip in an earlier episode of the podcast, so have a look for it. Wrote this great post last week called How to Be Creative When Daily Life is Making You Feel Like an Old Boot. Mm. which I think is a terrific headline um, for a great little post just about, you know, sometimes you're just not feeling it, you know, and you have to kind of, well, I have to say I'm not feeling it. It's November. I've got a book to write. I've got 50 other things to do. I've got 8,000 school plays and assemblies and I don't know what else to go to this month. So I'm not, you know, let's just say I'm not enamored with the idea that I'm having to write a lot of words this month. But I read Pip's post and I smiled because I thought, you know what, it's so true. You can be creative and you can find that spark of inspiration on a daily basis even when you don't feel like it. And she has um, lots of great little tips that I think are worth reading for anyone who's kind of feeling the same way. And one of them, of course, is um, is something that I use a lot and that is to carve out tiny snippets of time. She calls it tiny time, which is, you know, very cute. Um, you know, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I've got to write X number, you know, 30,000 million words this, this month. Um, I can't look at it like that. I have to look at it is as in I have half an hour today. I need to write 500. Yeah, yeah. It has to be broken down into little snippets. I don't have three weeks to go on retreat and write a book. I no. have to just make it work. Um, so I think that that is terrific. And whether you, you know, want to scribble or doodle or whether you want to paint a picture or what it is that you want to do in your time, whether it be writing or whatever, find that snippet of time that you need. Um, the other thing she talks about is looking for the gems in your day to help you turn over a new leaf. She talks about gems a lot. They are sort of small things that can become really, really big things. You know, whether it be the beautiful light in your room in the morning or the fact that you've run into someone that day that you haven't seen for ages and it was lovely. Maybe it's just that fabulous, you know, cup of coffee that you have in the morning or something that makes you smile or even just that wonderful moment where you get into bed at night and your whole body relaxes. You know, focus on those small things in the day um, that you can look for that will help you to then, you know, folk, that you, if you can find small things that are wonderful, then the bootiness, the old bootiness of your day tends to kind of, you know, relax a little bit. And I think that that's really, really, really great. Um, so I think it's worth having a look at, at this post. One of the things that she talks about is also to stop faffing about online. Um <laughs> Which I think is great because, you know, it's not just the time that sucks away on the internet, but sometimes it's the emotion of it all. It's been like the last couple of weeks on the internet, particularly in the blogging world, have been very angsty. There's been a lot of drama going on. Yeah. And whether or not you're involved in that drama, it affects you. You may not even realize how much it's affecting you. And the best thing that you can possibly do if you're feeling angsty about the internet, if, you know, someone's annoying you on Facebook or whatever, is to turn it off. 
and yeah. walk away. Because the beautiful thing about the internet is that it disappears when you push the off button. Yeah, that's And there you are that. just in your actual day. So those are just a few tips. Definitely worth having a read of Pip's uh, post and we will put the link in the show notes. If you are feeling like an old boot, yeah, it will an old help. boot. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. like I like the one about um, concentrate on one or two favorite projects for now because the thing is sometimes we've got lots of ideas and we can mm. actually be overwhelmed by the number of ideas that we don't know which one to start. And mm. the reality is just pick one and start. Otherwise, you constantly just have all of these twenty ideas floating around and you're just paralyzed by thinking, oh, do I start that one? Do I start that one? Do I start yeah. that one? Just yeah. put nineteen of them away. Yeah, and, focus and the because ang- the angst of not getting to things creates tension and stress oh. in you as well. Whereas if you, if you feel like you're chunking down one thing, you're doing something useful, oh, it's just so much, your mental health is so much better, I think. Yeah, much definitely, better. definitely. Yeah. All right, so now let's move on to our official giveaway for this week. The um, That book was just the unofficial one. <laughs> but we have such an exciting giveaway. This is like one of the best giveaways we've ever done, Al. Okay, I'm on the edge of my seat. We're pretty, yeah, so excited about this and mm-hmm. it's like, um, it's awesome. And so throughout the month of November, apart from being NaNoWriMo, it's actually the month that we want you to bring your creativity to the surface. Now, oh. the reason that we say that is that we've partnered with our friends at Microsoft Surface. Now, you may have seen those fantastic Surface Pros where they can be a tablet, but there's also a keyboard and it operates just like a regular PC. So, we want to invite you to unleash your creativity in our fantastic competition. And you can, we know whether that... You know, whether that creativity is writing a novel or taking a photo or producing a piece of art or writing an article, whatever, Um, we, you have a chance to win your very own Surface Pro 4, which is valued at $2,799. Now, we'll put all of the details in a blog post but I'll, we'll give you the rundown, brief rundown here. But if you do want the details in a blog post, just go to writercenter.com.au slash surface life. Now, all you need to do, it's really, really easy. You just need to tell us in a maximum of 25 words, uh, a surface would help me create and then finish the sentence. So a surface would help me create and finish the sentence. You can just do words or you can do a words and a Uh, words and a picture and you just need to post your entry to either Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or on your blog all of and and you need to tag it with the hashtag surface life but what I suggest you do to make sure that you you're doing all of the steps and the steps are actually very simple and and only very short but go to that link writercenter.com.au slash surface life to enter this fantastic competition and yeah, you are in the running to win a Surface Pro 4 valued at $2,799. And I can speak from experience. I have a Surface and I think it's fantastic. So definitely enter. Good luck because this is a ma- major competition. Good luck. Good luck. 
This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular five-week online course in copywriting essentials will teach you how to turn your writing skills into a weapon of mass persuasion. Learn the seven steps to creating compelling copy, how to take a creative brief, the secrets of SEO and much more so you can begin earning good money immediately. Learn online from wherever you are and get your own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash essentials. Are we ready for the word of the week, Al? So ready, Val. Have you ever used this word? Inamorata. Um, I haven't used it, but I know what it is. Okay. Inamorata is one word. It's I-N-A-M-O-R-A-T-A. And what is it, Al? <laughs> well, when I see it written, I just usually think of it as being um, a, a, a someone's lover. Like it's a, it's a, you know, she's with me, we're lovers, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's, that's how I see it when I see it written. I usually see it in crime novels and things like that. <gasps> okay. Okay. Um, yeah, what that is, is it? pretty accurate. The, but specifically because it's inamorata with an A at the end, yeah, it's a fancy way of saying a woman with whom you are in love or the woman you love. So you uh, might say his inamorata is Maria, a 30-year-old school teacher from Brisbane. <laughs> it's the feminine of inamorato, which unsurprisingly is a person's male lover. So there you go. Well, that's interesting because I, I've never seen inamorato I've only ever seen it in the feminine, so that's interesting, isn't it? I wonder yes. if it's not used as much in the Yes, I think one is more used masculine. than the other. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, inamorata and inamorato. There you go, some new words. That's our word of the week for this week. And if you're using it in a blog post, make sure you ping us so that we see how you've used this week's word of the week. There you go. There you go. Okay. So, um, what have you got for us, Val? I'm thinking we're up to our writer in residence. Yes, our writer in residence. Yes, our writer in residence. Let me grab ooh, the book. Ooh, ooh. I read this book <laughs> from cover to cover in like one day. Oh. Okay, I think that remember how two weeks ago we had on uh, the podcast Richard Roxburgh. Yes, I do remember that well. Well, fans of Richard Roxburgh will also know that one of his most iconic roles was playing Roger Rogerson, the mm. criminal, um, well, the New South Wales police officer turned criminal, mm-hmm. um, who was who became notorious in the 80s in particular, 80s and 90s, and subsequently Rog um, Richard Roxburgh. It's all very confusing, all of these R's. Mm. Richard Roxburgh played him in the acclaimed television series Blue Murder and he's actually reprising his role. I think last year they were filming the sequel to Blue Murder um, in, around Sydney as well and he's going to play him again. Well, Ooh. Roger Rogerson, um, the, Duncan McNabb, who is our writer in residence, actually mm. wrote a biography of Roger Rogerson um, and his incredible you know, truth is stranger than fiction kind of mm. life and dealings and all of that uh, back in 2006. And right. he, he kind of thought that Roger then went off and, you know, he got old, like mm. went to jail and decided to live a quiet life. Not mm. so because mm. because more recently 
Uh, many people will be familiar with the murder of the student, UCS student, Jamie Gow. Yep. And um, as it turns out, Roger is alive and well and, and very, very busy. So Duncan... <laughs> That's one way of putting it. Yes. Duncan McNabb has uh, tracked Roger's career from the very early days. Duncan himself used to be in the police and has since become also a, a, a journalist and has written true crime, such as his latest book, Roger Rogerson. It's a... Um, it's unputdownable. And so we're having a chat now with Duncan. Thanks so much for joining us today, Duncan. Valerie, it's a pleasure to be here. I devoured your book. I couldn't put it down. I thought it was um, uh, it, I thought it was brilliant, and it was it's just such an amazing story. And even though I knew elements of the story, because of course Roger Rogerson uh, has been in the headlines over the years, um, there was just so much about it that um, I found still amazingly surprising and and uh, you know new. So, uh, in case there are some listeners who are a bit young and may not have grown up with uh, all of the headlines with Roger Rogerson or who have been living on another planet in the last couple of years. Can you just tell them, what's this book about? Uh, it's about a man who reveled at one stage in the name or the nickname the Australia's most notorious police officer. Um, he's a well-deserved title, by the way. Roger Rogerson started out as a copper in New South Wales back in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, started out well, was doing quite fine in the police force, but was mentored by some of the most corrupt detectives of that period. And Roger relished also his mentoring um, and by the late 70s was gloriously corrupt, um, a man who could manipulate court cases, um, locked people up um, using unsigned records of interview or what they used to call in those days police verbals. Um, and he was a, a very brave man, a very capable detective and thought to be potentially a commissioner of police. <laughs> Career was going fabulously until June 1981 when he shot dead a gentleman called Warren Lanfranchi who was a drug dealer. Um, and Roger committed the cardinal sin of policing is that he drew attention to what the police force was doing and to what he was doing in particular. And that turned his career around slightly. Um, and by 1986, after being complicit in trying to murder a fellow copper, um, Roger was out of the police force and starting a brand spanking new career as a consultant to Australia's crime. Uh, well, for about the best part of 30 years, he got away with that as well. Um, two stints in jail for lying or being caught on CCTV and or tape lying. Um, and uh, on the 20th of May 2014, um, he and his cohort, Glenn McNamara, another detective who'd also written a couple of books, I might say, mm. um, murdered in cold blood a young chap called Jamie Gow, just a few months shy of his 21st birthday. Jamie was um, involved in a drug deal with him. Jamie brought almost three kilos of ice to the table, or actually to a store room in Padstow. Mm. And rather than bringing the money to pay for it, the two former detectives bought a gun, and uh, that ended Jamie's life. <laughs> 
It's truth is stranger than fiction, isn't it? Now, the thing is, this is not the first time you've written about Roger. You wrote another book previously, and uh, that had uh, many highlights of Roger's career. At what point did you think it's time for another one? Um, The first, apart from my phone going bananas after this had happened, because in my first book on Roger, I'd retire him happily to play with his grandkids and do a bit of fishing. That was a mistake. That was a big mistake. So that was a good starting point for a new book. Mm -hmm. Um, Within about a month, I suppose, of his arrest, I was looking at uh, freshening up my old book. And then I looked at it really seriously and I thought, there is so much more information. There are three people involved in this now. Mm. Um, Jamie Gow, the 20-year-old boy who getting himself deeply involved in drug trafficking, kid from a very good family, great education, a student at UTS. Mm. Unusual for crooks. Um, mm. Glenn McNamara, the co-business detective, um, apparently a white knight, an anti-corruption fighter, hated drugs, uh, wrote a couple of books about his exploits, um, and turns out to be as complicit in drug dealing and a murderer as Roger. So I thought, there's plenty of stuff here for a new book. And so many people who were a bit shy about talking to me 10 years ago have become very talkative since. Why do you think they have become more talkative? Because, you know, Roger's still alive. Yeah, the cold hand of Roger Rogerson, unfortunately for Roger, um, no, it doesn't carry any weight. Up until about two years ago, um, Roger still had a lot of clout. Uh, The name was enough to make people apprehensive, and those that knew him knew he was still capable of perhaps persuading people to act on his behalf to do you grief. (laughs) After after the murder of Jamie Gow, um, even long-term associates, shall we say, walked away from him. They just thought, you know, this guy is just too bloody mad and dangerous. Mm, mm. So a, a month after it all, at the arrest, you started thinking about this, about writing an updated, uh, well, a new book with all yeah. of the new stories. I mean, it, <laughs> amazing story in itself, just the Jamie Gow um, mm. uh, tragedy or incident or murder, rather. Um, and uh, what did you think you needed to do to do like, did you approach it in a, okay, I'm going to wait for the court case and see what happens. Oh, I'm going to interview all of their associates in the meantime. Um, how did you approach it? All of the above. Um, one trick, and I've sort of been around the law for rather a long time, is that you never rely on the law to give you a timetable that will ever work for you. <laughs> um, things happen, and the Rogerson case is a perfect example. So I, I started putting together all my research, and I thought the structure of the book would be um, that we start with bringing the three characters in so people don't get confused. Uh, God knows a three main character story can be a little interesting to balance. Um, and then sort of tell their backstories, bring them together, introduce them, um, talk about their various exploits up until the point that Jamie dies. Uh, and that's when everything comes together. Uh, and then the remainder of the, co- remainder of the story is um, about what happened to Jamie. And then I thought this would be quite easy, a couple of thousand words, and I'll be able to uh, write the court case up quite nicely, (laughs) little little realising that there would be um, one failed start, one almost start, and then a 
a trial predicted to be eight to ten weeks. It blew out to twelve weeks and ended up at sixteen and a half weeks. Mm. Um, so yeah, um, so the the back end of the book got slightly larger because the um, the tribulations of getting the matter to court became quite exciting. And I suppose it was an opportunity to also tell a bit of a story about being inside a major criminal trial. We mm. look at them on TV and it's all clean and sanitised and quite nice. Mm. Court cases are utterly different to what we see in, like, on television. Mm. So it's an opportunity to tell that and to look at the, you know, the three players um, in the court situation. Jamie, of course, was just there in spirit, but the other two were very much physically there. Um, so you can look at, I suppose, um, how they react to things, the stories they tell. Neither man told the truth. Um, no. both, of them, both of them just happily blamed each other. Um, and some extraordinary yarns come out in court cases that um, at some point uh, they can be recorded, but um, court cases are very careful, so a lot of it can't be heard by the jury ever. I'm oh, sorry, in the course of the trial, once they brought their verdict out. So being there to listen to the things the jury couldn't hear is always utterly fascinating, and you've got to keep your lips zipped when you leave. Mm. And so were you there every day? Um, almost every day. I, um, I'd sort of go down... It's, court cases, particularly in the old King Street Court in Sydney, would do your back in before they do your head in. Yeah, right. Um, you know, the, the wooden seats designed in about the 1840s aren't exactly the best place to spend eight hours. No. But oh, you, you get a feel for what was happening that day and then come back at critical moments. Um, yeah. And if there was a witness who really wanted to hear the full detail of because court cases, there's a lot of really mundane stuff that goes on. Right. Uh, so, you once you've been around a while, you start to cherry pick the best times, and you've also got people that you know down there. So, yep. I remember, um, I went to left Sydney just after the closing addresses, thinking because oh, I had to go overseas. And I think, oh, but it'll all be over, and someone will let me know how it pans out. Well, that didn't work, um, and I got back in Sydney on the 15th of June, I landed around about 8.30, was just heading home for a shower, and I thought, I'll just mosey down, the jury is still out, we'll see what happens. And I got a phone call from one of those wonderful people who love court watching, and you get to know them after a while, and they thoroughly enjoy themselves, they know everybody, they're great sources of information. <laughs> and one of them rang me, and she said, darling, if you're back in Australia, hurry. Wow. And I got... I got back to the courtroom literally as a foreman was standing before person, so standing up to deliver the verdict. So, yeah, it's intriguing. But uh, I lasted about um, three and a half out of the four and a half months. Yeah, right. So you were there for quite a lot of it. And what, in terms of getting the material you wanted, apart from your own interest, but you obviously were getting material for the book, what sort of things were you um, – wanting to observe what in, what in particular did you want to get out of the court case um, in the court case itself it's good to see who's turning up and who's sitting in the public gallery that morning yeah that's always fascinating to see just who from the media says always a bit intriguing as well because Roger had a lot of media mates um, most of whom weren't spotted um, which is intriguing if nothing else um uh, but also what I find really important if you're covering a court case is to get there for some of the mundane things that look like housekeeping because you get the absolute best bits of information. They'll read through detailed documents which are wonderful interlinking pieces uh, that will never see the light of day in, court in, in front of a jury. So you get all that great stuff. And uh, then you get mornings like the first trial that was um, the first trial in July of 2015 is aborted 
um, all the drama of how that came to play came into play. Um, and then I suppose one fascinating day in the trial was um, there were two there were two fascinating points. Um, one of the witnesses dropped Glenn McNamara straight into it, saying he was a drug dealer, and that of course is enough to send most lawyers to do a conniption, thinking, "Oh God, the trial's about to fall over." It didn't. And the other fascinating day was when McNamara, around about three months into the trial, McNamara was just poised to commence his defence case and his barrister stood up in court on the Monday morning and looked at the judge and said, I'm terribly sorry, sir, but my instructions have been withdrawn. I no longer act for Mr McNamara. Um, and about three hours later, his solicitor popped up and said precisely the same thing. So that was an absolute roller coaster. Mm, amazing. Uh, What's an example of some of the mundane things that you find fascinating that would be tabled in court? Um, you know, statements from witnesses who won't be called, for example, are always interesting. Uh, coming uh, various par- other parties to the case coming down to um, argue that their client should be excluded and giving reasons why. Um, they, they look like procedural things, but if, you, if you're really on top of the case in the background of the case, they actually help you lock in details. You, you've been wondering about why something happened, and there'll be an, an innocuous remark in the uh, housekeeping in the morning, and all of a sudden you think, oh, that's why. Right. So they provide the links. It says real foundation stuff. Mm. Um, cross-examination gives you the exciting turbulence that the response, but these little bits and pieces set it all up. So particularly, no, no good for TV, not much good for print, but if you're looking at um, a large book, then these sorts of things can underpin a lot of your thinking. Yeah, sure. So now you said that until about two, uh, two years ago, the cold hand of Roger was, you know, it, it, people reacted differently um, and presumably uh, prior to that feared him a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So your first book was, uh, what, 10 years ago? Uh, yeah. Yeah, 10 uh, years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. So at that time, presumably, he was still um, a daunting character. At any point, did you fear for your own safety? Um, not really. It's sort of, we've been around for a while. It makes it a little bit easier, I suppose. Um, I suppose the only time that I was apprehensive about Roger was after I'd published and I wrote to Roger while he was inside saying, let's have a chat when you get outside. I'm writing a book about you, so let's have an interview. And he very politely wrote back to me and said that he didn't think he'd have time, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and that was nice about fair enough, whatever. And shortly after I'd published the book, he did get into contact with me and sort of delivered about a half hour worth of reasonably sizable threats and a few other unpleasant bits and pieces rolled on top. Um, and the art of the threat is actually making you apprehensive rather than following through. So for a couple of days after that, you do keep a quiet glance over your shoulder when you're wandering around. You think, oh, he wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. But then again, just in case, and that um, shows the mastery of Rogerson's ability to threaten people. It's his reputation that just kicks you off to one side. Yeah, okay. So um, just take us back. Now, you've written a number of books, uh, not only about Roger, but also about the bikies and um, some fantastic stories. Uh, But you started off uh, with a career in the police. A long, long time ago, yes. Yeah, right. When did the interest in writing occur? 
I actually started writing shortly after I left the covers and uh, wrote columns and op-ed pieces and all that sort of jazz for anyone who'd take them for years. And I but why? Why did you want to do that? Ah, I've been reading since I could open my eyes and work out what a world looked like. So I suppose for me it was a natural progression. Right. Um, I just always, I've always thoroughly enjoyed writing. I was always quite good at it. I thought at school and was enjoyed. So it was quite pleasant um, to think. Well, I wouldn't mind writing a book. And then a journalist mate of mine from the Australian actually rang me and said, "Mate, you should write a book." And I said, "What would I write it on?" So he gave me a couple of hints and then hooked me up with my agent. Um, and uh, we've been together, scribbling away happily ever since. Have you mainly written about crime? Um, crime and history more than anything else. Um, uh, most of the books have been crime-focused because that's what I know backwards. I've written a, an Australian history with crime focus called Waterfront that came out last year. Um, and I wrote a book on World War II, which is just a sort of a good story about a couple of Australian fellows who did something remarkable. Uh, and it's uh, sold okay, but it was an absolute delight to write about them. Right. What do you enjoy about writing? I, th- I suppose what I enjoy about it is not missing it when I'm not writing because you get very antsy after a while. Um, I like I like sitting down and working through a story. I mean, in the course of a day, you can go to all sorts of wonderful places without leaving a chair. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> you know, and particularly when you're researching books that have got a bit of... Um, global story to them. Um, you, you can spend your entire or half a day with your head head in the computer or in the library researching the places, uh, context, all that context stuff that I think is incredibly important when you're writing. Yeah. And then you sit there in the afternoon, you'll go down and knock out two, two, two to two and a half thousand words each day. Um, but you've been travelling to all these great places and you'll get to a part in a paragraph, for example, and you think, well, I don't have enough research on that, so you go off on another trip somewhere else. Fabulous. <laughs> so obviously a lot of research is involved in your books and in a, a lot of research and certainly a yep. lot of um, uh, recording uh, of information was vital for this book mm-hmm. and some of it obviously you had done in your previous book. Yep. What? How do you approach that research process on a practical level? Like... Do you have little buckets of different files on different people or do you do it by incident or you do it by um, time period? How do you actually do it am, in a structured way so it's not I am all a over huge fan. I am a huge fan of chronology. Um, chronology, okay. Yeah. The writing, sorry, the research process itself is you just go out and cast the biggest net you can possibly find. Mm-hmm. Um, um, which, and it's something, I mean, when I wrote the book on the Australians, um, I realised shortly after the publisher had said what a good idea that is, that I had to go to Ethiopia. Um, and, you know, I had to go to London to do some research here and there. So you take the biggest possible that it's like when you work in television, uh, which is where I sort of did a lot of media for years. When you're out filming something, you film everything you need and a hell of a lot more just to make sure you've got the gaps covered. Yep. Researching a book is the same. You go out, you cast this gigantic net, you pull in as much as possible because you, you've got a rough idea where the story's going and as you do the research, um, the storyline evolves very quickly. Um, then you, I tend to put all my research then into a rough chronology and that will then form the spine of the book. Um, I not a huge fan of books that jump all over the place. I find them quite frustrating. <laughs> so when I write something, you'll 
it largely just follows a nice straight chronology, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I suppose it might. All those years of detective training, I suppose you start at the beginning and finish at the end. Yes, yes. And I, I notice that the end tends to write itself much better. Um, if you take a chronology, it makes it far simpler and far more punchy. Yes. Well, certainly in a story like this, a chronological account makes the most sense for sure. So when you were writing this book in the depths of it, yep. um, I'm assuming a lot of it was written before the trial because it came out very quickly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it was, uh, up, up to the... Oh, God, up to, almost up to the beginning of the first trial. The book itself was three-quarters written before the trial began, um, and I kept adding to it as the trial progressed, picking out things that I thought would be useful. Um, a chapter and verse on a trial of bore people to death. You've only got to sit through the first day to realise that the excitement is um, can be elusive. Um, so by the time the book was pretty much right to go by the time the verdict came in. So when the verdict came in on the 15th of June, I spent, um, I thought I had a bit more time, but my dear publisher ran me and said, no, we'd like it in 10 days. And I said, oh, thanks very much. Um, uh, look, working with a great publisher like I've got makes life so much easier because it's a team effort and everyone gets involved. Um, and it was literally went into edit about 10 days later. Um, Copy edit was done, which is the, the first major edit in the book. It's where you, know, you sort of come back with all manner of questions, which is great, challenges and big bits taken out, which is great, and my, my grammar corrected, which is always important. Um, I, and this is the part of the bookmaking process. You, authors have to learn that you your bit's done, and you hand it over to the professionals who then turn what you've scribbled on into something useful, and that's the joys of having great copy editors. They really just... They knock the book into shape. Mm. Um, so the book was in shape um, by oh, late and mid-August, and all we were then doing is just waiting impatiently, probably, for Roger's sentencing in the beginning of September. And when that came along, it was a quick weekend typing to put in the closer, and we were done. Wow. Which is why this one came out infinitely faster than usual. Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, when you were in the throes of writing it, so before the trial, I suppose, for the bulk of it, yeah. um, did you have a particular approach in that do you have a word count target or did you think, I'm going to cover this era of his life in this week? Or, you know, how did you actually just get it out? Like, or did you have a routine? A bit of both. If, when you're sort of on on sorry, on song to write the book and you know where the deadline is and all that sort of stuff. Um, I like to write 10,000 words a week. Wow. Uh, <laughs> anything less than that, you're lazy. <laughs> sorry about that to anybody else. Um, I had a mate of mine who's um, bumped into me a couple of years ago and he's a sort of well-known writer and journalist. And he said, I've been working on this book for years. Years and years. God, it's hard. And I said, mate, yeah, I turn around in three or four months. Get over yourself. Um <laughs> If you have the time to do it, you know, you just got to sit. I find the easiest way to write a book is not to sit down and torture yourself over every word or sit back at night and reread everything painstaking. You sit down and write the bloody thing. So, yeah, 10K words a week isn't that hard. You do your research. You've got that lined up. If time permits, I'll run through my research for the next day, the night before, and then a bit of in the morning. I think most writers do the same thing. They'll probably wander around 
polish the teacups, make sure the banister's shining, anything but writing. Mm. And then you sit down and knock out a couple of thousand words. Um, that gets you through that day, and you then repeat six or seven days a week. So mm. if I can do 10K a week, I'm happy. Um, when the pace was cracked on for this one, I think one day I put down 5,000 words. Wow. Um, but you've got to have a rough idea where you're going. It's, you've got to have that clarity, not only in the, line, the arc of the book, but also in the next step. Yeah. What I find about writing fast is that that clarity is easier to come by. Yeah. Um, you know where you're heading pretty much and you close for example every chapter will be closed um, oh, cliffhanger-ish perhaps mm. a little bit of enticement to move on so you've got to plan that in your book as well there's nothing worse than a chapter entering ending flat mm. uh, you've got a little bit of incentive to the reader to turn the next page so one of the key characters, apart from Roger Rogerson in this book, as you mentioned, is Glenn McNamara, who yep. is also in the police force and has, as you mentioned, written a couple of books and was at one point quite a crusader against yeah. drugs. But then he has now been convicted, for, along with Roger, for the murder of Jamie Gow. And why do you think he turned? Do you, uh, yeah. Yeah. I- I think he turned a long time ago, just that he spun a very good story that persuaded all of us. And this, this is the magic of, you know, even people like Roger who rehabilitated their reputation. Um, yeah, when Glenn McNamara, um, Glenn McNamara, was, I suppose the short point is that Glenn McNamara painted himself as a whistleblower who exposed a drug ring of corrupt coppers, uh, traffickers, and a couple of pedophiles in King's Cross. And then wrote about it in his book, did some appeal, lots of media about it, and we all think, oh, yeah, he was pretty good blood, I've looked at it. And we accepted it because he sold his story, and we thought, oh, that's all fair enough. I didn't question him. Um, that all changed after he was arrested because I thought to myself, here is the most bent copper in our history, and a guy who everyone, as far as I can see, thinks is utterly honest. What, is, what are these two doing together? Then I had a look uh, at Glenn, and it looks as though Glenn had had a bit of a bromance with Roger for many, many years. But in interviewing the people back who were involved in 1989 when Glenn's story um, first became public knowledge, um, they all tell me a very different yard to the one Glenn painted. And Glenn had actually been actively involved in corruption, not with the pedophiles. Uh, I think he was generally horrified about that, but the drug ring that they were part of, he was certainly involved in. Um, and some couple of people who had actually been gone to jail for the drug ring came in and said to me, well, you know, Glenn wasn't what he purported to be. Um, so the more you dig, the more you realise that Glenn was a, a bit of a Walter Mitty character um, who was besotted by Roger, I think, uh, like a lot of people were. Um, so Glenn's, Glenn's underpinnings weren't what he sold us on. Um, and then he falls into bed with Roger, metaphorically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whilst I was still surprised, um, the story you learn about Glenn is a very, very different one to the public one he crafted. Um, so there are people in the book, and I'm, I'm sure you've met many people through the course of all of your research in so many crime-related things, who, like Glenn, seduced or besotted by whether these you're yeah. besotted by Roger or not, you're seduced by the dark side. Obviously, Jamie Gow was, you know, mm. this well brought up, supposedly well brought up uni student who uh, got into drugs. 
Have you ever felt that pull and have you to understand what that pull is? I, uh, I personally never felt it. It's sort of one of those things that you either are or you aren't, <laughs> pardon me, or you're just on the fence about. One of the great seducers I saw in the New South Wales police is that um, people on you know, average amount of money, they, they work bloody hard, they've got families to support and all that sort of stuff. These very, very large amount of money is put on the table and said this can be yours and it doesn't need much. Mm. And that's the sedu- seduction of the money. Can push even fairly honest people across the line. And once they've got you, you you're gone. Mm. Um, mm. But a lot of people I worked with back in those days and still too just look at it and say, no, I'm not going down that path. I'm sorry, I know what's going to happen. Jamie was... A lot like a lot of young kids in gangs these days was seduced by the lifestyle the money bought. Um, he had a lot of swagger about him. He came from a you know a, a very good, loving family. He had good relationships with friends. But Jamie thought he wanted. Jamie said to one of his mates, "I want to be a gangster." Um, and he and his mates were all absolutely enthused by Hong Kong action flicks. Um, and so when he falls into a, a bad crowd, as we used to say, um, Jamie thinks, well, I'm smarter than these people. I can do this a bit better. Unfortunately, Jamie was a terrible researcher, so when he thought he could do it better, he really should have researched who he was going to go and play with. Yes, like even Google. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, yeah, Jamie and Google are just not good. So, you know, uh, I, you feel sorry for the poor kid because he really didn't know what he was getting himself into. All right, yes, he was a drug dealer, but, God, he was only 20 years old as well. Mm-mm. Now, the actual murder of Jamie Gow, uh, which you des- describe, I mean, you describe the events that yep. led up to the murder and the subsequent events of what happened with the body and I won't, you know, go yes, into that now, yeah. um, uh, is fascinating reading because it's I, I'm just reading it in disbelief, in just complete disbelief that uh, Roger and Glenn – <laughs> thought that they would not get caught. It was. It's the common thread, actually, in all this. But I reckon they planned this to the nth degree. Just they made a couple of big mistakes. That old, what did the old adage? Uh, the best, the best planning in military operation uh, disappears at the time the first shots fired. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly. These guys had actually meticulously planned this. They had all the little bits the paraphernalia they'd need to carry out the crime, mm. the guns, the ropes, uh, tarpaulins and so on. Um, and they knew that when they went to collect a bag of ice from Jamie Gow that they were, that they were obliged to give him some money. Yes. Um, but they didn't bother to take the money, they just took the gun. Um, so it was planned, and I think they, they knew about the CCTV at the um, storage site, which is where it all unfolded. Yeah. But what they missed was a camera at the rendezvous site where Glenn McNamara picked Jamie up. Mm. And that had, it had clear vision of both, uh, sorry, of uh, Jamie, of Glenn, of Roger, and their three cars. So when someone stumbled on that and the boys hadn't, um, they thought, oh, this is interesting. They saw that vision and then they pulled further vision from along this little quiet street. Um, and then it was like just watching dominoes collapse because that one camera tweaked a reaction throughout cam- other cameras and then into the main street, which had them recorded all the way up to the storage unit and into the storage unit. It was, um, 
And I, you know, without wishing to sort of go down grisly tasks, they had anticipated that Jamie's body would never be found. Mm. So they thought they had the complete cutoff, and they didn't. Astounding. And it is astounding, isn't it? I, um, uh, I think you mentioned that um, somebody who is older and obviously who has lived through the Roger Rogerson years happened to be walking past when the younger policemen were viewing the um, footage. Yes. And he, he happened to recognise him because the younger kids wouldn't have. Yeah, the, I suppose the pivotal part of the afternoon that the coppers worked out who they were dealing with was that um, McNamara was already a suspect by that stage and the police were looking at the surveillance tapes they'd pulled earlier that day from the storage unit where the murder took place. Um, and they were looking at them and thinking, oh, this is fascinating stuff. And then an older policeman apparently walked past and coppers being inquisitive, of course, looked out what the young fellows were looking at and saw that and said, and the cleaned up version, oh my goodness, that's Roger. <laughs> um, so it was, uh, and then it was, it becomes a very straightforward matter thinking now they've got two suspects, they do all their electronic work and um, pull up phone calls, um, text messages, emails, and so on and so forth, um, and link the two men inextricably together. Mm. Uh, Roger and Glenn, of course, were completely ignorant of all this. <laughs> Unbelievable. So have, do you know whether either Roger or Glenn have read your book? Uh, I'd say not, no. <laughs> Um, no, do you expect them to, and do you expect a response or anything? Um, look, I don't think they will, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I've had one response on a book from a prison uh, guy. Quite some, one of the biker books I wrote with Ross Coulthard, the man wrote to us in a state of high dudgeon, saying, I've never heard of this man who's making these allegations against me, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, fair enough. So I then sent him back a polite note saying, if you read the book thoroughly, you'd see his name was changed, his real name is so-and-so, which is on page so-and-so, and by the way, he was best man at your wedding. Um, <laughs> we didn't hear back. No. But, uh, look, they might, and I might get a stroppy letter from them, yeah. Yes. So what, um, for people who are writing true crime, really, uh, like this, and who are writing uh, some stuff that is based in fact and therefore needs to be presented um, accurately, what is the biggest challenge for you and what is your advice to people when they're approaching this kind of writing? Um, you, you, your sources will be three. In my case, sources are threefold: things I know, which is, you know, I suppose, I'm a little bit unusual in this yeah. regard. But for someone coming to it, possibly with a slightly different background, um, your sources uh, will be people you talk to. When they talk to you and tell you something, you've got to make sure that they're telling you the truth, or that yeah. you can verify what they're saying, or you make sure you couch it in terms and say, "Okay, I've been told this. I can't verify, but here we go." Yeah. Um, the most important thing I find in writing books like this is to get lots and lots of old-fashioned paper. Um, I'm a bit sort of a Luddite in that regard, so I have piles of paper, post-it notes, and highlighters. Mm. And you'll find that if you're dealing in something particularly in the legal world, um, everything is still non-digital. Uh, it might arrive in, it might arrive via email, but you've got to print the damn thing off and read it. Um, and just get as much information as you can. Cast, again, a broad net. Um, 
we have a lot, if you're writing on crime, it's uh, for being before the courts. The courts are broadly uh, excellent resources. You'll get copies of transcript, interviews, and all that sort of thing. Get them. Court judgments are wonderful. When the judges sum up mm. in a major case, they go through the correct evidence in magnificent detail. And you read this and think, oh, I didn't know any of that. Mm. Uh, and you know, approach the formal sources and get the right information um, as a starting point, and that will give you a good spine for your research. What was the most rewarding thing about writing this book? Um, being in court on the 15th of June and standing there and um, finding Roger had been convicted by a jury of his peers. Mm. That was absolutely wonderful. Um, and I think, as always with any book, um, when it goes out the door, um, you're, you're relieved it's finished. Um, you're also dreading what the publishers and our editors are going to say. But there's a sense of relief that it's gone and also a sense of loss because yeah. you keep thinking now, and something I, I, first-time authors particularly I chat to have this uh, issue there. Um, they, okay, let's do a little bit more. Let's do a little bit more. I think, well, no, once it's finished, it's finished. Hand it over to the professionals. They'll do the rest. Um, you, you see them try and torture themselves, and the book loses a lot of its spirit when they do it. Yeah. And what are you working on next? Um, in print, nothing. Uh, <laughs> I'm exa- I've you, got you're book. tired? Be tired. <laughs> well, I've, got another book, I've got another book due out in um, February on the Sydney's gay hate murders. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit time-consuming. Um, so I'm going to take a break for a couple of a month or two. I'm doing some work um, in television, dickering with scripts and that sort of stuff. So, um, so that's just a, it's a nice break to actually have to deal with pictures rather than vast amounts of words. Yeah, wonderful. And you never know what project is coming along next. You never know. Roger may have a third wind. <laughs> I hope not. No. I, I hopefully he's happily sitting back having an afternoon tea, perhaps a little scotch finger and iced bobo and reading this morning's telegraph and doing the crossword. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, regardless of whether you lived through the Roger Rogerson um, years in the, you know, the, the 70s and 80s. This is an absolutely fascinating read um, and I highly recommend it to everyone. So congratulations on the book and thank you so much for chatting, us, chatting to us today, Duncan. Thanks very much, Valerie. Oh, there we go, Duncan McNabb. What a great interview, Val. And I really liked the fact that you managed to get some sirens in the background. Uh, could, you still, yeah, could you hear that in the audio? Yeah, because yeah. I was thinking, oh, my God. I, like I, I, I did pause at one point and ask him, where are you? <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, I guess it just adds to the uh, atmosphere of, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. true crime, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. he was uh, doing that from, from Darlinghurst but inside. Um, so, you know, he's in the thick of it, obviously. Mm. Definitely, definitely. Anyway, let's move on to our platform building tip this week. What have oh, we got? Well, fabulously, um, I've got um, a little tip from our friend Natasha Lester. Now, Natasha yes. is a presenter with the Australian Writers' Centre and Natasha is quite fabulous online. If you haven't yes. discovered her, um, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, etc. she's queen of Pinterest, um, yep. then you should sort of def- definitely get over there and have a look. She's at natashalester.com.au. But Natasha um, 
released a new novel earlier this year called A Kiss from Mr. Fitzgerald. Yes. And she has written a blog post called Four Lessons I've Learned This Year as a Writer. Um, she's had a very big year and she's in that moment of, you know, post-publication in which, you know, so many of us long to be. Post-publication is so much more fun than pre-publication in many ways. But um, one of the things she talks about here, um, and as I said, she does have a terrific online profile, but she also is someone who works very, very hard offline. And one of her tips is to, and one of the really important things that she's discovered as a writer this year, as her books come out, is the importance of meeting readers as much as you can. Yes. and she talks about the fact that, you know, readers are wonderful people and they are. They love books. They love writers. Um, and as she says, if you're ever having a down moment, feeling like an old boot, as Pip would have, <laughs> eating someone who tells you that they loved your book just changes your entire day. Yeah. So she tries to go out and meet as many people as she can. And she says yes to just pretty much everything that will get her out and about and meeting readers. She goes to book clubs, she goes to libraries, she goes to bookshops. And I do remember when we did our interview earlier, a long time ago, like episode four with John Purcell from Booktopia. He talked about the importance of saying yes. And he um, cited Matthew Riley, who of course is one of our best-selling authors, one of Australia's best-selling authors. And he talked about the fact that when Matthew Riley started out, he said yes to everything. Mm. He went to book clubs. He would go and meet one person practically. He went to all those things. But every single one of those people that he met remembered him Yep. remembered the experience and became a vocal advocate for him, talked about his books, talked, everyone that they met, bought his next book, talked about it. And then as online grew, talked about those books online as well as offline. So I think it's one of those situations where, you know, I think people, authors can be scared of readers yeah. um, because, of course, you know, it does involve, you know, talking to people, um, <laughs> which which can be, you know, I get it, can be difficult, particularly if you're having an old boot day. It's not that much fun. But I ha- it's a really energising process as well. And I, and I can say this from experience because I go to school visits and I go to library stuff and I do all these things as well. And I don't always feel like it. And honestly, going and talking to 300 kids in a sweaty school assembly hall can be a challenge at times. But it's a wonderful, wonderful experience when they come up to you afterwards and they tell you how much they like your books or how much they're looking forward to reading your books so it's a very very energizing thing to do as an author and they've met you they feel a connection with you they will talk about you so I think Natasha's tip there of meeting readers as much as you can is a really really important one for authors to bear in mind as they go through the publication process. Do you think that if you've invited to a book club or a library talk or you know something like that that you should have something pre-prepared or do you typically think that people are going to ask questions? Uh, no, I think it's always a good idea to go with something in your mind. Like it, it, cause it's one of those situations where generally speaking at anything that you go to, even if it's a dinner or whatever, you know, and you're expecting to not talk about anything except just, just to be there. Mm. Um, there's going to be like a 10 to 15 minute window where they're going to sat, they're going to ask you to speak. They're going to ask you to talk about your books. And this is where you need to have in your head that 
that message, whatever that message is that you want to get across about your books or to, to with this particular group of people, you need to have it organised because there's nothing worse than standing there and sort of blah, 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 blah not mm. quite knowing what you're going to do. Um, I remember I did a reading at the Sydney Writers' Festival, had an, uh, sort of like a regional offshoot satellite event at um, in Wollongong earlier this year and I'd never done a reading before and I wasn't exactly sure what, what, what a person did at such an event. Um, so mm. I kind of went along, I, well, you know, I know you read, but 20, <laughs> <Yeah>. 20 <laughs> minutes is a long time to read. So yeah. I sort of went along and I, I had in my head that the section of the book that I would read, um, and I realized that that was probably going to take up 10 minutes. And then I thought, well, what am I going to do for the other 10 minutes? I can't mm. just kind of sit there. And I can't assume that people are going to ask questions because audiences can be very, very, very quiet, um, particularly adult audiences, children's audiences, not so much. Um, so I kind of just did a little version. In, I, I, I have a one-hour talk that I do when I go to schools where I talk about, you know, where I got the idea for the book and how it came about and blah, blah, blah. And, and I just kind of did a truncated 10-minute version of that with the same bad jokes. And I'm sure <laughs> anyone who's ever been to a couple of my talks will know that I give the same same bad jokes every single time. Um, but it's worth having a couple of bad jokes and it's worth having that inspiration story and it's worth having just a few things that you've worked out in your head that you can pull out, you know, off the cuff, so to speak, um, mm. when you get there. Can you have good jokes? Be ready. <laughs> well, I'm sure, you know what? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I got invited. They might be good. I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, I got invited once to this dinner party um, and there was going to be like 12 people there or something and, oh no, yeah, about 12 to 15 people and um, it was, well, obviously at dinner and another, someone I know uh, was also invited, um, a friend of mine because we kind of compared notes afterwards and she's an author as well, but she'd, she'd won the Vogel. So she's, she's quite a good author. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, a well-known author. And, um, we, uh, we, we, um, the, the host said, um, can you bring copies of your book for everyone? Oh. <laughs> and I was like, how many people are going to be there? Oh, about 15, so maybe bring 16. I mean, I didn't have 16 books. You know, you're not no. actually given. And um, uh, she didn't either, but she brought like three or four or whatever. And the host just got her to sign them there and gave them away to his guests. That's weird. I know. That's really weird. And she just didn't quite know what to do because they, the, uh, they were the last of her books. <laughs> oh, man, that's weird. Yeah, some people have this um, incorrect idea that you have an endless supply of your own book, but in fact yeah, that's I not the case. So. Yeah, and that you can just hand them out for free willy-nilly. But that's a conversation for another day, I think, yes, Valerie. We might, we might incorporate that into a different day. Yes. Now, of course, some of those um, tips from Natasha Lester are awesome. We'll put the link in the show notes. But for other platform-building tips, you can find them in Al's course. Uh, how to build your author platform and you can find out more at writerscentercomau slash platform but that actually brings us to the end of this week's episode Al 
doesn't it? It does. I, it does. Can you hear? Can you hear that going on in the I, background? I believe there are children who have. Oh, there's back children to bashing at the back door, and the dog is is howling, and time it's time to wrap up. Definitely time to wrap up <laughs> quickly. You'll when, find yes. You'll find me at alisontait.com, a double l i s o n t a i t. You'll find me on Twitter at al tate, a l t a i t, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and just search uh, for Valerie Koo on Facebook and you'll find me. And we look forward to chatting to you again next week. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.